The Franklin Church of Christ welcomes you to another exciting study in God's Word. There are many mistaken concepts about growing churches in modern times. Most of the time, churches do not try to grow. They just try to maintain what they have. In this lesson, Edwin Crozier takes a closer look at the difference between a maintenance mentality and a growth mentality. May God be glorified as we learn how His church grows. The fact is, it takes a different kind of mentality to grow a church. If we have simply a maintenance mentality, we need to recognize that all we're going to do is kill the church. If we want the church to grow, if we want a congregation to flourish, then we, got, we have to have a mentality, a mindset that is focused on growth, that looks forward to growth and works toward growth. Tonight, I'd like for us to take a look at a contrast. I'd like for us to consider the difference between a growth mentality and a maintenance mentality. Well, I think I'd like for us to do this. There we go. I'd like for us to take a look at the different kind of mindset that if all we're going to do is maintain versus actually grow the congregation. There's a series of contrasts I'd like for us to take a look at. One of the very difficult things when you talk about church growth, and that's especially when you're at your own congregation, is, of course, the issue of, of it seeming like you're, you're blistering everybody and saying this is where we're getting it all wrong. That's not the point tonight. My point tonight is just to take a look at contrast. There's some of these I think probably we've got some room to work on. There's some of them I think we're doing pretty well on. I just want us to notice the difference. Because even if right now we have a strong growth mentality, one of the things that we've got to be very careful of is losing it. And so we've got to understand what it looks like and how it works and where we need to be in order to help the congregation to grow. The very first thing that we need to understand is that a maintenance mentality relies upon us. A growth mentality relies upon God. Paul demonstrated where growth comes from in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul there says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Verse 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. You notice from these verses that we have work to do. We've got to plant, we've got to water, but who causes the growth? Not us. God causes the growth. If any congregation is going to grow, it's going to be because the congregation is relying upon God and God is working through us because, in fact, we are relying upon God. Maintainers, however, instead of relying upon God, they're relying upon us. Typically, maintainers are looking around at what we can see and what we can fathom and what we can understand and what we can put our minds around and look at. And regrettably, what happens is maintainers take a look at all the possible work that's out there and typically what we do is we become overwhelmed because we realize we just can't do it all. But those with a growth mentality recognize that we don't have to do it all. We simply have to rely on God, do what we can, and God will work through us. We have to rely on God. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Paul said, For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Maintainers walk by sight. Growers walk by faith. I'll give you a little illustration. One that I think is very poignant in today's world. A lot of times when you deal with the issue of discipline. You've got maintainers that are so worried about maintaining what we've got that they don't want to do what God says about discipline because all they can see is the fallout and folks leaving. And no doubt when you discipline someone, you've lost a member of the congregation and are so intent upon maintaining what we have. We're just focusing on what we see. But those who walk by faith believe that God's way works best. And when discipline has to take place, they discipline and realize that in the end, God's congregation is going to grow and be stronger for it. Why? Not because we're somehow special, but because we've walked by faith and we've relied on God and we've done things God's way. And when we do things God's way, God will bless us His way. And that's the the key that we have to understand. Just think about this. What would a congregation look like that was walking totally by faith? and not by sight. That as a congregation, its leaders, its members, its deacons, its preachers, its elders, whatever role folks might fill, if when they sat back and decided what should we be doing as a congregation, their number one question was, does God want us to do this? Can we tell through God's Word that He wants us to be involved in this? And if He does, we're going to do it. Even if we can't see the finances, even if we can't see the resources, even if we can't see how we're going to accomplish it, if we can determine through God's Word that He wants us to do this, then let's step out in faith and we'll do it. And trust God to cause the growth. Trust God to cause the increase. We walk by faith, not by sight. Maintainers rely on us. Growers rely on God. Secondly, those who are maintenance-minded, they're satisfied. Those who are growth-minded, why, they're constructively discontent. Maintainers are happy with the way things are. They're, they're happy when things are good enough. You get a building relatively full. You've got some classes that are, that are going along pretty well. You have two gospel meetings a year. And, and we're happy. And we're satisfied. And we get very upset whenever somebody else comes along and says, but you know, I just don't think it's good enough. I think we could do a little better. But see, that's what growth-minded people feel like. They're constructively discontent. They take a look around and they realize things are going okay, but they also realize things can be better. And we need to improve them. We need to make them better. We can, our worship can be better. It can be more reverent. Our classes can teach more. Our spiritual lives can be stronger. Whatever we might say, those who are growth-minded are constructively discontent. They're not satisfied with where things are. They want to push. They want to challenge. They want to make us go that extra mile to get us beyond where we are right now. You want to see satisfaction gone to seed? Take a look in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, we see the church at Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, Jesus says to this church, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, 
and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I said to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was satisfied. They took a look at themselves and they thought, we're rich, we can see, everything's going well. But because of their satisfaction, they could not see exactly how bad everything really was. Now, brethren, I do not think that we are remotely like Laodicea. But this picture frightens me because this is where satisfaction leads. This is when when we become complacent and we begin to believe that everything is good enough. This is where we end up. And we've got to make sure that we do not allow that mindset of satisfaction to set in because one day Jesus will say to us, if we do, I know you think you're clothed, and I know you think you're rich, and I know you think everything is okay, but you need to see how miserable and wretched you are. We must never become just satisfied with good enough. We've got to constantly push. We need to be constructively discontent. Now, let me make a comment on this. I want you to notice that the discontent is constructive. Growth-minded people are constructively discontent. They are not malcontent. We're not talking about folks who want everything to be done their way so they're constantly causing problems and bucking heads with everybody. We're not talking about folks who think that everything is bad and they're just negatively minded and they don't like anything. We're talking about folks who are able to look around and say, yeah, okay, things are good, but things can be better. And so they're not satisfied. Constantly pushing, constantly challenging, pushing us to do better, to be better, to be more than we are, to be better instruments that God can use in order to serve Him here in this community, in order to glorify Him here. Maintainers are satisfied. Growers are constructively discontent. Thirdly, maintenance looks behind. Growth looks ahead. Those who are maintainers are constantly looking back to the glory days. I've been in all kinds of congregations. Some I've been members of, some I've, I've visited with meetings, some I've just visited just through travels and things. And you can see churches that are, are truly maintenance-minded because they're so focused on what's happened in the past. And, oh, we remember the good old days when old brother so-and-so used to preach. Boy, I tell you what, he could lay it on the line. He knew how to preach and we were growing when he was here. Oh, I remember the good old days when we were in that building over such and such a place. I mean, those were the days. And, you know, we moved over here and that was just a big mistake. Oh, I remember the days of the big gospel meetings when we were baptizing 15, 20 people every time we had a gospel meeting. Oh, I remember all those days. And they're constantly looking back. Growers, however, realize that there's no growth in the past. We're looking ahead. We've got to look to the future. You want to see an example of looking ahead? Look in Acts chapter 1. In verse 8, in Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, Jesus demonstrated to His apostles, He said, fellas, you better look ahead. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, He says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Eleven men were supposed to accomplish that? That's looking ahead. That's looking at what are we going to be doing in the future. That's looking down the road, and that's exactly the kind of mindset that we have to have. What can we do in the future? Where can this congregation grow and not look back? I haven't listened to last Sunday morning's sermon yet, but I understand y'all heard a lot about that last Sunday morning. Don't look back. Look ahead. You want to look at another congregation gone to seed on looking behind? 
We can go back again to the seven churches of Asia. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 this time, looking at the church in Sardis. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus said to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. How does a congregation that's dead have a name that it's alive? That's reputation. Where did that reputation come from? It came from the past. Basically, Jesus is saying, I know you're living in the past. I know you're banking on all the things that happened in the past, but you can't do that anymore. You've got to look ahead. You, you think you're alive, and everybody else thinks you're alive, but I know you're dead. Again, I don't believe we're remotely like Sardis, but this picture frightens me because if we allow this mindset of looking behind and looking back to come in, and we hone in there, Sardis is exactly what we're going to be. We may believe we're alive. <clears throat> all the other churches around us that hear about us and know about us may look to the Franklin Church and say, oh, now there is a living congregation, a working, a hard-working congregation, but God will know we're dead if we have this kind of mindset. Don't look, in the, don't look in the past. Don't look behind. Look ahead. Look to the future. Let's not bank on all the things we've done in the past, whether good things or bad things, whether we've had problems or victories. Just look to the future. What can we do to glorify God? And again, we do that with faith, relying on God, not on ourselves. Maintainers look behind. Growers look ahead. The fourth thing we recognize, maintainers want the same, growers want change. Here's the reality. If we continually and constantly always do the same things, we will continually and constantly always get the same results. And in reality, even that statement is not necessarily true. If we continually and constantly always do the same things, what we will actually get are declining results. It's true in just about any type of organization, any type of institution, any type of endeavor that you might try to, to go through. The statement that we often hear today, nothing fails like success. Have you ever heard that statement? Nothing fails like success. Here's what that means. There may have been something that we did once that was just awesome and amazing. It caused all kinds of growth and we said that was a success. And we did it twice and it did it again. In fact, we may have done it for five or ten years. But then after a while, the society changed. Things changed around us. We're not getting the same kind of impact from that work or what we were doing in the past. And yet, now it's become institutionalized. It's become a part of what we are. And sometimes we get confused about whether or not it's actually scriptural or just something that we've done that's in the lines of Scripture. But there are sometimes there are things that we do that we act as though if we didn't do that, we wouldn't be following God's plan. And that's not necessarily the case. There are numerous approaches that we can take to things that fit within God's plan. And when we talk about change, we need to remember this. I hope you understand. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Though I mention the word change, I am not even remotely suggesting that we ever change our standard of authority. I am not even remotely suggesting that we ever change what we go to to determine whether or not we are allowed to do something. We must never, ever, ever change that. 
We must always stick within the realm of Scripture and always only do what we can find book, chapter, and verse for, what we can find authority for based upon the Word of God. But we need to keep in mind that not every single thing we do has been commanded that we have to do it exactly that way to be in line with what God has said. Maintainers want the same. Growers want change. Brethren, the fact is, if you want growth, you have to have change. Personal growth will only take place when you change the way you live personally. Family growth will only take place when you change what you do in your family. And congregational growth will only take place when we change and improve and get better and do more. It's the only time it happens. Change always precedes growth. Positive, constructive change, scriptural change always precedes growth. I'll show you an example. Look in Acts 19. Here was a case when a change had to be made. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, Paul came to Ephesus. And in Acts 19 and verse 8, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, excuse me, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Do you see what was happening here? Paul came in and he set up a pattern. For three months he was there teaching in the synagogues, but came to a standstill. In fact, things were probably moving backwards because folks were now blaspheming the way. What did Paul have to do? Paul had to make a change and went from teaching in the synagogue to teaching at the school of Tyrannus. But notice what happened here. Because of this change, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is probably one of the biggest things we struggle with because, let's face it, we don't like change. We like things to be comfortably the same. We get used to the way we do things. We get used to the plan and pattern that we follow. And when change comes up, boy, we can come up with all reasons why we just shouldn't do it that way. I mean, you want to, you want to talk about change and, and causing problems. I remember one time when I was in Beaumont, we did a special lesson. And because of what we did with the lesson, we changed the order of services. And just about everybody said, oh, that was great. It was awesome. Really liked that. But there was one fellow who called up and said, but we're not going to do it like that every week, are we? Why? Because he liked the same. And even just changing something like the order of services threw him off kilter. I'll tell you one of the big things, looking at, at churches in general today, where we struggle with this. You know, back 40, 50, 60 years ago, toward the first half of the last century, what was the number one way churches grew? They had protracted gospel meetings sometimes lasting two weeks. And they'd have a guy come in, and I mean, he would just lay it on the line. And by the end of that, they'd baptize 20, 30. I mean, I've heard all kinds of stories about the numbers that they would baptize. Have you ever thought about why that worked? Those of you who lived in that time, why'd that work? Because you didn't have anything better to do. You didn't have TV. You didn't have air conditioning at home. It wasn't comfortable. You didn't have PTA and soccer and all those things to go to. What did you have to do? Well, the church down the road's having a meeting. Let's go to that. 
And everybody went, whether it was Baptists or Methodists or, or, or Christians that were doing this. didn't matter. Everybody in the community went. And so Monday night, the preacher gets up there and he blasts away at faith-only doctrine. And what do they do? They get ticked off and they get mad. But Tuesday night, they didn't have anything to do. So what did they do? They went to the meeting anyway. And after about a week or two of that, they heard the entire gospel. And even if it made them mad at first, they stuck around and heard it. And after two weeks, a lot of them were baptized. And it worked very well. But guess what? Now people have better things to do. And it just doesn't work that way. There's not a church out there that's having success using the gospel meaning for that purpose anymore. It's not happening anywhere. And yet churches are hanging on to that like a drowning man hanging on to a lifeboat. To the extent that if a congregation doesn't have a gospel meeting in a year, folks think that they're going liberal. I can't believe that. They didn't have a gospel meeting. No, what we need to do is we need to figure out a way to get the job done. We can use meetings in different ways. But let's not ever think that we're going to have the success that churches had back in the 30s and the 40s with gospel meetings because it ain't going to work that way. Things have changed. And when changes take place, it may be something as big as how we deal with our personal evangelism. It may be something as small as order of services. It may be something about how we conduct our Bible classes. It may be about where the assembly place is. But here's the thing that we need to understand. Maintainers want the same. Growers want change. One more comment on that. Rarely do growers want change simply for the sake of change. I recognize that there might be some times when changing things just to shake things up and get things off center might be good. But that's rarely the case. Growers rarely want change just to change things. Growers realize that there was a good reason for doing the things that we do. At one time, there was a good reason for this. But that good reason is not being maintained anymore or attained anymore. And so we change only because it's going to help with growth, not just because I'm in love with change. Got to keep that in mind. Maintainers want the same. Growers want change. Maintenance avoids problems. Growth confronts problems quickly. Every congregation has problems. It's just going to happen that way. We're dealing with people. And we all make mistakes and we all do things wrong and we all get into trouble with one another. It's always going to happen. There's never going to be a congregation that doesn't have problems. But maintenance-minded congregations try to avoid dealing with those problems. Growth-minded congregations hit them head on. You see, maintenance-minded congregations, because they're focusing on what they see and not on faith and relying on God, when they take a look at problems, they can't see the big picture and where things are going to go down in the future. All they can see is the immediate, that if we hit this problem head-on, there's going to be some fallout. And so what they hope is that if we just ignore it, it'll kind of take care of itself and everything will move along smoothly and we won't have to deal with it. But growers recognize that if you don't deal with the problem, it just gets worse. And in the end, the fallout will always be worse. And so they're ready because they're looking at the big picture to resolve the problem so that the church can be unified and can grow and become stronger. You take a look at the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church, there wasn't anything maintenance-minded about them. In Acts chapter 5 and chapter 6, they had a couple of problems. In Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, there was a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. And they sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this need in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard those things. Well, I'd imagine so. You notice what happened? they got a problem. There's sin in the camp. Here are some liars that are among the brotherhood. Hypocrites. They've sold a piece of property and they presented it as though they sold it for a certain amount. But in fact, they sold it for more and just kept part of it. Now, of course, the apostles, Peter in specific here in this context, he could have sat back and worried about, well, what will happen? If we confront them, they might get mad and others might get mad. You know, they've got family that are here and, oh, who knows what could happen. But that's not, that's not what he thought at all. Instead, he hit the problem head on. And there was some fallout. That congregation had two less members after that was done. I don't know how many other people may have gotten scared off and left, but I'm sure there were some. In fact, it goes on to point out in the next couple of verses that folks were afraid to hang out with the apostles. But in the long run, the church grew and was stronger for it. Verse 12, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest of them dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Why? Because they hit the problems head on, and they dealt with it. Chapter 6, another problem, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after they laid the, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Here was a problem. The native Hebrews' widows are being overlooked in the daily ministration of food, and they're upset. And they come to the apostles and say, what are you all going to do about this? Now, the apostles, of course, could have sat back and thought, ooh, this is a really explosive situation. We're dealing with racial issues. And if we go to the congregation and tell them that they need to pick some men, they can get into some major fights about who they're going to get. But that's not what they did. What they did, they hit the problem head on. And interestingly, they provided a solution that, boy, if our elders said this today, we'd probably just have a cow. If we went to the elders and said, hey, there's this issue that needs to be taken care of, and they said to us, we don't have time for that. Y'all go pick out some men who take care of it. We'd, we'd probably mutiny and accuse them of not fulfilling their role, but that's exactly what the apostles did. But they hit the problem head on. And they dealt with it. 
And the congregation was behind it. And notice in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. There are far too many congregations today that when it comes to problems would rather just kind of sit back and hope that it takes care of itself and try to sit back and say, maybe we don't actually have to do anything about this and hopefully it will take care of itself. Brethren, it never, ever works that way. There's no doubt that there are times when it looks like it's, become, it's been overcome, but in the end it will always rear its ugly head again and it will always be worse unless a congregation steps up and hits the problem head on quickly. Maintainers, because all they can see is the right now, they'll try to avoid the problems and not deal with them. Growers see the big picture and realize that facing the problems, even if it causes immediate fallout, will eventually cause a stronger congregation. Maintenance focuses on members. Growth focuses on guests. This is a very practical aspect of this. But it's very interesting how many churches do not grow because they expect everybody to be at the same level as the members. And they have guests that come in and guests, frankly, just aren't at our level. Those who are not Christians, they don't have the commitment. They don't have the devotion that we have. If they had that, they'd already be members, wouldn't they? But there are a lot of congregations that make all their decisions based on what the members want. And they don't take into consideration what's going to help our guests become members. Because, brethren, that's where growth comes from. Guests becoming members. Non-Christians becoming Christians. That's growth. Anything else is just shifting around. I'm not even getting into tonight this issue of members coming from other congregations. It's a sad thing that a lot of congregations, they'll get members from other churches and talk about all the growth they had. No, there was no growth in the kingdom. There was just shifting, swelling. Growth takes place when non-Christians become Christians. When our guests, who are not members of the Lord's body, become members of the Lord's body. That is growth. And if we're going to accomplish that, we've got to think... Like the non-Christians. You remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? What did he point out? He said, To the Jews I become as the Jews, to the Gentiles as the Gentiles, to the weak as the weak, so that by all means I might save some. We've got to think like that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 23, Paul wrote there, he said, Therefore, if the whole church, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and an ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he'll fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What we learn from this passage is that when we gather in our assembly, we've got to think about the guests that are among us, and we've got to conduct ourselves in a way that convicts them. Not just in a way that's comfortable to us. We've got to think in a way that convicts them. Far too many churches, though, are just focused on the members. They don't take any time to explain to the guests what's going on and why it's working that way. Some churches don't even take the time to make the guests feel welcome. 
very few churches even remotely make decisions about how the assembly worship is to be conducted or the classes to be conducted based on guests. It just rarely happens. Because most congregations are so focused on us. I'll give you just a very mundane illustration. Just a very practical illustration. It's one I've used before, but I just want you to think about it again. It's amazing how many congregations are willing to cut off guests, to bore them to tears at the very beginning by starting off with ten minutes of announcements. Mentioning a whole bunch of names that they don't know, talking about groups that they don't care about, mentioning things that doesn't mean anything to them, and by the time the announcements are done, they're sitting there saying, well, I guess this is not for us. That's, that's, what, that's what they think. I want you to put yourselves in their mindset and you're going someplace. And you don't know anybody. You don't know anything that's going on there. And for ten minutes, you, you come to worship God, but for the first five to ten minutes, you're listening to announcements that have very little to do with worshiping God. By the time we're done with that, we're done. And our guests, certainly, brethren, if our guests were spiritually minded and devoted to the Lord, they could make it through that and they'd get right into the worship once we started. But remember, that's not where they are. That's not who they are. If they were, they'd already be members. Why do we do that? I know exactly why we do that. And I have to tell you, I really appreciate our elders here because over the past few months, they've really worked to cut back on that. But why do we do that? I'll tell you why. Because old brother sister, brother and sister so-and-so would just get their feelings hurt and they'd get terribly upset and mad if, if for the fifth week in a row we forgot to mention the bout with bursitis. And because we have group leaders that instead of getting on the phone and calling the 15 people in their group, would rather do the easy thing and just have somebody announce it. That's why we do that. You know what, brethren? We've got to come to grips with the fact that there are other ways for us to get that information out. We've got the PowerPoint reel at the beginning. We've got a bulletin that's made. We, you know what? We've also got, we've got somebody who I think all on her own started doing an update in the email. I mean, it gets out there. We've got ways to let folks know we need prayer. We've got ways to get those updates out there. We've got ways for folks to know when their groups are meeting. Why don't we come up with a better system? Use those things. I, I know why we don't ever do that. Because when a radical like me comes up and says, you know what, we shouldn't do announcements. Somebody says, you know what, you don't love the brethren. That's not true at all. I love the brethren. I pray for the brethren. But I'm not willing to sacrifice prospects for the brethren. And that's just one small example of things that we do that are focused on members and not thinking about the guests. All kinds of other issues that we could think of here. But that's something we need to think about. If we're going to grow, we've got to focus on the guests. We've got to think about them. Think about where they are and not just think about ourselves. Finally, maintenance kills a church. Growth maintains it and grows it. This is just an amazing paradox. The folks who are focused on maintenance do not realize what they're doing to a congregation. It's amazing. Those who are maintainers, all they can see is that things are falling apart over a long period of time, and they're so worried about maintaining it and keeping it all together, they just continue all the processes that keep, it, keep letting it fall apart. 
And they look at those of us who step up and say, no, we need to do better, we need to do things different, we need to change, we need to grow, and they're afraid that's too risky. We're already losing, folks. Well, if we do all that, we're just going to lose more. And so they just continue in the maintenance. And here's the amazing thing. When we have the positive biblical growth mindset that we've talked about tonight, we will maintain. But more than that, we'll grow. Growers recognize that there will always be setbacks. There will always be course corrections, if you will. There will always be bumps in the road. But over the long haul, what you'll always consistently see is growth. Consider Jerusalem again in Acts chapter 8. Here they were. They were just walking by faith. They were just teaching the gospel as God wanted it taught. In Acts chapter 8, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen is stoned and a persecution begins. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. Excuse me, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Here's the Jerusalem church. You want to talk about setback? We're talking about folks saying, see, I told you, if we kept teaching the gospel like this, and you kept getting out there and thinking about growth, we were going to have problems. They ended up with it. Persecution began and took away almost the whole congregation. This, was, this, this congregation probably had ten to 15,000 people in it. And almost all of them are now gone. But the folks who stayed behind continued to have a growth mindset. I know that because in Acts 8 and verse 14, when the gospel got to Samaria, instead of the apostles saying, well, look, man, we just lost a whole bunch of members. We've got to work on stuff here. In Acts 8 and verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. Why? Because they were growth-minded. And they were thinking not just about the growth in their congregation, but in the kingdom in general. And then in Acts chapter 11, when, it, when the gospel got to Antioch, we find in Acts chapter 11... Verse 22, that the news about them in Antioch reached their ears of the church in Jerusalem. And what they do? They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Why? Because they were growth-minded. They were thinking about growth and how to help things get better and stronger in Christ's church. But here's the thing that's always impressed me. Is that when you get to Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21 and verse 20, Paul has come back to Jerusalem. And he's meeting with James... And when they heard about what had happened among the Gentiles, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. They had a setback. They had a course correction. Things dropped for a while. But in the long run, it was always up. Onward and upward. Always growth. Why? Because they were focused on growth. That was the mentality that they had. And because that was their mentality, that's the way they worked. And that's the, things, that's the way things went in Jerusalem. And we can do that. But we've got to have that kind of mentality. We've got to have that mindset. Here's the sad thing. Most congregations begin with a growth mindset. But over time, things occur... Perhaps they get to a place where they're satisfied. Who knows? Maybe they got to where they're fully supporting and now they can pay their preacher and they're worried about losing members and going back to him having to receive support. Maybe they've finally gotten into a building and they're worried about losing the building. Who knows what it is? But almost without fail, congregations get to a point where they become maintenance-minded. No longer focused on growing, but just maintaining what we've already got. And we just can't do that. 
There are souls that are lost and dying and going to hell here in the Middle Tennessee area. And we can't let that happen if we can do anything to stop it. But brethren, I tell you what, it takes more than having good preaching, if that's what you're getting here. It takes more than having a nice building, which is exactly what we have here. And it takes more than finally coming around and putting out the fires whenever the emergency comes up. It takes having a growth mentality that looks to the future and says we're going to step out in faith and do God's will. And we're constantly going to do better. And we're going to work to bring those guests in and convert them. That's what it takes. We can do that. And I'll tell you what, we are going to do that. Thank you, Edwin, for helping us see the difference between growing churches and dying churches. And thank you for joining us in this study of God's Word. Let's remember what we have learned. One, maintenance relies on us. Growth relies on God. Two, maintenance is satisfied. Growth is constructively discontent. Three, maintenance looks behind. Growth looks ahead. Four, maintenance avoids problems. Growth resolves problems quickly. Five, maintenance wants the same. Growth wants change. Six, maintenance focuses on members. Growth focuses on guests. And finally, maintenance kills churches. Growth maintains and grows them. May we always rely on God doing His will and trusting Him to provide the increase. If you have any questions about evangelism and church growth, about the Franklin Church of Christ, or about how you can be saved by relying on God, please call us at 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Thank you. May God richly bless you, and may you richly bless God.